future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce to you my very special guest and personal friend, Will Cross. Will, welcome to A Current Life. Well, thanks for having me, Jimmy. It's great to be here. Well, for those of you, uh, I want to give you a proper introduction, as we always do. Uh, Will is a world-class mountain climber who has ascended the highest peaks on all seven continents. Uh, his life has been filled with excitement and thrill all while dealing with diabetes. He was diagnosed with diabetes as a child and has been living with type 1 diabetes for 30-some years. He has climbed the highest peaks in the world, including in each of the seven continents. He has also walked both the North and South Pole. Uh, he also, as he will talk about, was hunted by a polar bear, so we'll talk a little bit about that during the show. And as all of you know who listen to the show, and, and we're going into our about just past the year of doing this show, actually a year and a half. Uh, this show is about life's journey and the ups and the downs that we all have to overcome to get where each of us is meant to be. So on that note, Will, I'd like to start with your early years and ask you what life was like growing up and where you were from and kind of what you were like as a kid. I actually grew up in England, and um, when I was about three years old, uh, I had a life-threatening kidney <laughs> disease um, and really sort of grew up in the hospital until I was around nine uh, when I was diagnosed with diabetes, which was actually the upside of the initial condition, um, although I would have to take shots every day and have a special diet and maintain a balance throughout the rest of my life, um, it meant that my kidney condition was not fatal. So from sort of nine years on, uh, I learned to always have that in my life. Uh, it meant that I grew up with a healthy diet, um, and it meant that exercise was something that I had to have in my life every day, which, you know, to me didn't really matter. I was a swimmer and, a, and an athlete at the time and, and continue with that through college. But as I got older and my interests got uh, sort of more peaked and focused, I moved towards climbing uh, rather than swimming, and and that is something that I've stayed with really for the last 20 years. Let me ask a question just to go back for a second. Uh, how old were you when it was diagnosed, or what did you first, what did they first think that it was wrong with you, and what were the symptoms that you were dealing with? Well, I was three years old. At the time, it was called nephrotic syndrome. There was no cure. I actually had a, I had a physician who had gotten himself out of the Czech Republic, and, and he recommended very high doses of steroids. The symptoms were that I was very lethargic, um, but I was also bloated. You know, I was one of those fat kids um, because my system just couldn't process fluid. So I was I was not allowed to exercise because in the time they just didn't know what the body would do. Um, so I had you know a lot of time in bed and um, a lot of time to sort of figure out or think about what the heck is going on. The kid the the kidneys ended up 
fixing themselves as a result of the steroids, but the downside, they think, um, was the creation of diabetes in my life. And what, for those people, I mean, just to inform, and I, I think my numbers are right, there's about 70 million diabetics in our country alone, and or 70 million pre-diabetics and 30 million diabetics. Is that accurate? It sounds right. There, there are two types. The, the most common is type 2, which we associate with an older population or, or an obese population. The insulin is still delivered by the pancreas, but it may not be received and be able to be used. Whereas in a type 1, which is what I am, my pancreas simply does not produce the hormone uh, needed to turn up my food into usable energy. So I have to inject it every day. I have to test my blood sugars three to four times a day. I have to balance that with my food intake and my exercise output. And I've got to keep it all in balance so that I don't have a high blood sugar or a low blood sugar, both of which can be, you know, incapacitating. And how accurate is that, what you have to do? How painful was it, you know, learning how to do that? And I assume that it affects not only the person that has diabetes, but the people that are the caregivers and the parents and the people associated with, with the person that has diabetes. Well, no, that's, that's exactly right, Jimmy. Um, you know, when you're first diagnosed, it's devastating because... I mean, your whole world changes. Your the way you feel internally. You know, what did I do? Why is this happening to me? And then I think from a parent stage, there's sort of a a guilt, like like did you do it, or you know, where did this come from? And there's sort of an adaptive time where you get used to the new medicines and the new routines. It's difficult you know, on siblings, because all of a sudden the whole diet in the house has changed. You have to eat at certain times, or you did in those days when, when the insulins weren't predictable. Um, and it, it just, you know, it, it's a process of trying to understand and come to terms with the fact that you have a condition that you can't escape from. Um, whether you want to or not, scream as loud as you want, you still have to deal with this. And as a kid, that is quite a heavy burden, not only for diabetes, but I think for any significant diagnosis, there is a time of, I think, mourning and sort of reconciliation. Um, and you've got to go through that so that you can get on with your life. So, I mean, you know, what I found interesting, and you and I met just short of 10 years ago, uh, uh, for our listeners, we climbed Kilimanjaro together. And I remember uh, being fascinated by the fact that, on the one hand, you were facing this just constant monitoring of a disease that you had to deal with and be aware of every moment of your life. And I watched you prepare for that. And I watched you check yourself. And, and, and you had, I think at the time we were climbing, you had a pump, if I remember correctly. That's right. Uh, um, and uh, and then at the same time, your your sport, your recreation, your exercise is probably one of the most you know life threatening things you can do. I mean, climbing a mountain is not an easy thing, and climbing to the levels. I mean, I, look for me, climbing Kilimanjaro wasn't easy. So I imagine climbing Everest, and we're going to talk later in the broadcast about Maklu and and just some of the other things that you've gone through in your life. But I mean. Uh, I find it really unbelievable. So tell me as a child, what was it or was there something that kind of was this wow moment that said, I want to climb, I want to be a climber when I grow up? And and give us kind of that connection. You're this kid, you're in the hospital, you've got type 1 diabetes, you're injecting yourself, you're learning how to live this controlled life. And on the other hand, you're climbing some of the most threatening peaks the highest peaks on every continent in the world. I remember the moment exactly. I was, um, I think I was 10 years old. I was at a library, and I pulled out a book about explorers. There was a black and white picture on it of this guy on the top of a mountain, and I thought, wow, that is just the coolest thing. I want to do that. Having no concept of what it meant or how to get there, but... It, it was a very distinct um, identification of something that was important to me 
<clears throat> and that I wanted to strive towards. I think kids naturally climb. If you think about a baby moving from crawling to walking, they do so by, you know, climbing up the nearest piece of furniture. So we do that instinctively. As we get older, we go into other areas and other sports, you know, dance, football, whatever. Uh, but climbing was something that I always enjoyed. I was particularly good at it. Uh, if I was in a new neighborhood, I could, I could do it better than anyone else fairly quickly. And, um, and I sort of, uh, I think it, it was settling to me. I think like when we find something that we're good at and brings a level of satisfaction that that it brings with that um, an appreciation of the world in which we live and climbing is what did it for me. How old were you about at that time? I was about 10. So, you know, I mean, a lot of things that people, I think, decide to do, and I may be uh, in the minority on this, but, you know, it's kind of because there's either that wow moment or, you know, they want to meet girls or they want to meet this or they want to meet that. They want to change their life. They want something exciting. They've been in a rut, whatever. You know, when I decided to climb Kilimanjaro, really was about the time that you and I met when you were lecturing and traveling around. And I was seriously considering changing, kind of going through a life change. And I um, was working too hard, too much stress and and we came into each other's lives, and, and, and I found that, you know, that you were going to be my navigator, my mentor, the person who was going to take me in a, a world that I knew nothing about, which was the reason I was doing it. I was trying, I knew I, knew I needed to get out of my comfort zone. Right. I didn't need people to tell me that I was successful. I needed, I didn't really need anybody to tell me anything. I needed to learn. Yeah. I needed to realize why we're on this planet, and it was a very much of a spiritual coming together, uh, kind of a rebirthing, and I really take that very seriously, and I believe we should all do that over and over again in our lives, and I do think that, in a way, you do that every time you go about your expedition, and it's what I admire about you, and it's really uh, uh, what I would like our listeners to learn from this, is you overcame an unbelievable uh, disease, and you, you don't ever cure it, you, at least not, you haven't so far, we haven't found a cure for it today, but you've learned to manage it, and yet, you know, go about your life in such a way and have, uh, I think you now have how many children? I have four kids, two boys, two girls. So, uh, and are you teaching them to be, are they, do they want to be mountain climbers? You know, I, I have to say, I hope not. I hope they uh, <laughs> that they like the the international scene. You know, my kids were helping me pack last night, but uh-huh. it's not the profession that I would choose for for people that I love. That's for sure. Well, I loved you and hated you while we were climbing Kilimanjaro. So well, that's, that's all I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you were you were definitely my rock and. Whenever I decided that, I remember that last day when we had to climb over those boulders, and I can remember, you know, I just heard you in my background saying, I don't know if he's going to make it, you know, and it was kind of <laughs> like, okay, you know what, I may be a little bit older, but you know what, I got to I gotta work at this. So Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I have a lot of respect for you. Let me ask you, uh, you attended Allegheny College, and you went on to receive a master's degree in education from Duquesne. Uh, and you were also, uh, you specialized in educational programs for troubled teens. What kind of led you to your focus? And I, I guess you went on and got a degree in secondary principal certificate, certification. So tell me a little bit about that, and then I want to kind of get in a little bit about your career and your experiences for our listeners. Right. So I was in college looking for a job like uh, like many of us have done, and I knew one thing. I knew that I did not want to be inside. Beyond that, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and I found a job teaching in an outdoor school, living outdoors all year, and it was basically hoods in the woods. And I thought, well, I'll try it. I'll do it. And so I did that, and I... Um, these were some of the toughest, baddest kids, uh, way out of my realm of understanding uh, in terms of their backgrounds. But what I understood was, you know, they. I think most people have a drive to be successful. They they may not know where to 
where to place it. They may not know how to attain it. And these particular kids with a criminal background and, and some serious mental challenges and emotional challenges, I mean, they just get so frustrated and angry that they wanted something. They just didn't know how to get it. And I found that fascinating um, from an intellectual standpoint, but from a professional standpoint, I enjoyed that process of trying to unlock those codes and, you know, get to learn about their lives and, and how to change significant behaviors so that they could find some success. And I, I loved it. I, I mean, I enjoyed being outside. Um, I liked the working with criminal kids and I left that job a, a few years later, but continued for maybe 15 more years in the high school setting always working with tough kids and um, it's a mindset that I I get along well with. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I I mean, I like it though. Sure. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Um, If I was to take any given year, uh, how many months of that year are you actually on a mountain typically in a given year? So I'll I'll climb once or twice a year. Each expedition is two months long. So really for the last 10 years, I've climbed once or twice a year. And what's the preparation time for the climb? And maybe for, you know, I mean, uh, uh, we'll get in a little bit about the fact. I mean, you've climbed. Maybe we should do that now. Why don't you list what you've climbed for us? I mean, I know you've climbed Everest three times, but why don't you talk a little bit about some of your achievements and those things, and then I'd like to ask you some specific questions about them. Okay, well, sort of the big um, the big project was the Novolog Peaks and Poles Challenge, which was the highest mountain on each continent. Uh, in addition to that, uh, trekking to the North Pole and to the South Pole, and doing that all around the idea of raising the profile and the understanding of diabetes. Wow. Um, I've since, and I, and I was successful, reached the summit of Everest in 06, and then continued with a project called the Giant Mountain Challenge to climb six peaks above 26,000 feet. And so those significantly are Everest, Lhotse, which is the mountain next to it, Choyu, Manaslu, uh, and then tomorrow I head for the fifth, which is Makalu, which coincidentally is also the fifth highest mountain in the world. And that's right behind Mount Everest? It is. You know, you can see clearly one from the other, and they're just so big that they dwarf everything around you. So we were going to go to Kalapatara, which hopefully we will still do. Yes. What's the difference between Kalapatara and Makalu? I mean, I know it's significant in terms of what you've got to do, but what is the height of Makalu, and what's the height of Everest, and what's the height of Kalapatara? So the height of Everest is 29,035. The height oh. of Makalu is close to 28,000. And the height of Kalapatar is about uh, eighteen or nineteen thousand. So that's in feet. Um, in terms of what that does to your body, there there are just similarities but huge differences. Either way, you're dealing with a lack of oxygen to the brain, and it's very very difficult to function. Um, but as you get higher, it gets harder. You know, and I'm asked all the time. I mean, uh, we own a, a, a climbing company known as Wild Things Apparel, which you are involved with, and uh, wildthingsgear.com. And, um, you know, the question that I'm asked all the time, so how did you prepare? I mean, what did you do? Uh, go to a place that had a high altitude and prepare for it, which I didn't do for Kilimanjaro. And what I did is I walked and hiked and climbed and got my cardio right and everything else like that. But what do you do? And what have you done over the last six months to prepare for Makalu, which is 28,000 feet? So the preparation is, uh, in my estimation, is long, slow distance. I don't need to be particularly buff. I don't need to be outrageously uh, fit for my style of climbing. I'm doing a long, slow uh, expedition. I'm not doing fast and light alpine climbing. I am using oxygen. You know, I need to because of my health. Um, 
So what I need to be able to do, similar to the North and South Pole, is I need to just be able to sustain the same pace eight hours a day, keep my blood sugars not too high, not too low, get tired but not exhausted, and I can do that day in and day out. I can do that for a long time. And so this style of climbing suits my physiology. And how does that, and how does your physiology, how have you seen it change as the result of being on the mountain one to two times a year at these severe heights? And with the fact of the altitude, I mean, I experienced uh, 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 hypothermia, I experienced mountain sickness, I experienced, you know, I mean, you were with me. I mean, you know, I lost 14 pounds in two weeks, uh, in fact, in in, in, in 10 days. Uh, tell me what happens to the body and, and what happens in that. What I thought, and at least, you know, you're the expert. That's why I, I won't climb without you. What I thought and what I felt was that it didn't matter what age you were. I think there's a misnomer that a lot of people think younger people can sustain themselves better than older people. I actually found it was quite the opposite. Explain to, to, to the listeners what those thoughts and, and kind of the toll it takes on people and, and, and some of the myths and some of the realities. Well, the, the, the toll is the same on, on both of us. I mean, I lose a lot of weight on a trip, 15 to 20 pounds. Right. So pre-trip, I'm trying to gain about 10 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, when you come back from a trip, I'm generally foggy for a few day, a few weeks because of that lack of oxygen. But also because, you know, for two months I've been entirely focused on myself. And now you come back where people have wants and desires of you and your children want to talk to you and love you. And, you know, all of that, you've you've got to get out of your egomaniacal desire to get to the top of a mountain. (laughs) Well well put. You know, that's a a toll. Um, You know, another toll of, of being away is, you know, you miss things. If half of life is being there, then, you know, you're not there for two months. And that's true, you know, if you have a corporate ladder or a social ladder that interests you, but it's also true at home if you're not um, with your kids. Those are, you know, genuine and uh, impactful things in my life. Um, but, I, I, you know, I continue to do it. You know, what I found is, uh, and when I talk about getting out of your comfort zone, I didn't think about anything when I was on the mountain other than getting to the next, making the next step and and putting one foot in front of the other. And it kind of, it was an entire kind of adjustment, readjustment of my being, of everything about me. And um it must be for you at those heights just amazing because I, I it took me uh, and I wasn't a veteran like you it took me three good months to even want to walk around I mean <laughs> to walk a hill or to I couldn't even thought I mean the thought of I didn't work out for three months after Kilimanjaro I just didn't feel like doing it I couldn't do it I just was too I felt like I'd run probably what somebody would run five marathons and is that how you feel and also psychologically. I do feel you really don't want to be around anybody because there's an adjustment. And I imagine it's akin a little bit to when, I don't want to draw this exact analogy, but it's kind of like when you're taken from your comfort zone and put in a war or put in a a desert or a different environment. I mean, you really are kind of lost from what the reality of everyday living is. Isn't that true? Oh, it's absolutely true. I mean, your whole pace changes. Um, I don't know how you liked it or not, but I I like the simpleness. I mean, you're right down at your basic caveman mental and physical functioning. You know, you are putting one foot in front of the other, but it sort of breaks even with the world. I think it, I find it allows me to appreciate it and to enjoy it. But no, you're right. It, it When I get back, I don't feel like working out for weeks. I mean, and, it, I, and you don't feel guilty about that? No, no, I don't feel guilty about that at all. I'm exhausted. I've got, uh, yeah, I've got speaking engagements to do. I've got children to catch up with. No, I don't feel bad about that at all because I've just spent two months working out. But you, you did say something earlier about the misconceptions of altitude. Generally, the the big strong 
athletic marathon football player types, they don't do very well. Right. You know, the people who do well generally are over 40 and may have had a history of smoking or asthma. Incredible. So you're older, so you're wiser. You know when to quit. You're not just banging your head against the wall. That's one thing. But then with with the other two indicators, your body is used to functioning with less oxygen. You know, I right. Think, right. But, so you're used to the adjustment. I mean, you can make the adjustment easier. Altitude is is a fascinating thing. There are no hard and fast rules, but those seem to be the consistent findings of a lot of studies. Um, you can't train for altitude. You can get fit. You can get mentally fit. You know, I do a lot of mental rehearsal. You know, I go over the peak and the route, and I go over the alternatives, and I do an awful lot of mental rehearsal um, so that when you're there and a decision needs to be made. You've already reviewed it five or ten times, and it it doesn't take a lot of thought to put it into action. What actually helps me, and it did help me, to visualize what I was doing. I remember our experience in Kilimanjaro of climbing that wall, which freaked me out completely. In fact, I remember <laughs> asking you, so how are we going to get around that? And you said, we're not getting around it. We're going, we're up, going up, it, right? up and over it. And it... I will tell you, I, I, first of all, this may sound odd to people, but I'm afraid of heights, number one. And number two, I'm looking at this wall that was, what, a 1,000 feet high or whatever it was, and, and it was like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, it's like we're not even roped off. I mean, and I remember you grabbing my hand, holding me up, along with Herman, who was my uh, um, uh, hey, yeah. uh, my guide and uh, uh, from the, what, do you remember the tribe that he was with? At the time, it lived at the base. Gosh, of the I don't. I don't. But he was—he um, was an amazing guy. But you know, uh, it's—it's it's not for the weak. I can tell you that in terms of, of you have to be very dedicated, and you have to know when to quit, and you have to not let your ego get in the way. At the same time, I think the profession involves a lot of ego, and so. Uh, but yet, underneath it is this great spiritual context, and, and that's what I've always felt. You're a very calming person when I'm around you, uh, and uh, I'm not. I'm a type A individual, as you know, all the time, and, yeah. and I, I couldn't be on the mountain. I mean, it, you can't, you can't, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. But you were, or I found that you were able to not be that when you're on the mountain. I mean, to be attentive, to be aware of how you right. felt and what our goals were. And we, we sat down and sort of talked about it. We had a game plan. We had options for every day. And um, that's why we, we did as well as we did. I mean, that that's I mean, I like that. I, I don't see that it's that dissimilar from what, from what you do and what maybe a lot of your listeners do day-to-day constructing and compartmentalizing a complex business deal. I mean, um, it's intellectually fascinating, but it's also, you know, if you find the details entertaining enough, it can be quite quite rewarding. Well, I'm, I'm, we're going to take a, a short break, um, and then I want to come back and talk to you about the, the polar bear incident, and then I want to talk a lot more about some of the uh, things that have happened on the mountain, and then particularly about Makalu, which you're about to, to do. Uh, 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 it's time for a commercial break. This is Jimmy Gould with my special guest, Will Cross. You're listening to A Current Life, brought to you by Smartwater and AdSpace Small Networks. And um, just stay tuned, and we'll be back in a second. Thank you. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. At Wild Things, we've been making alpine clothing and packs right here in the USA since 1981. In fact, we began by stitching together extremely light climbing gear that guys on the mountain were trying to make on their own. It was a big deal in 1981. Making Wild Things the gear of choice for some of the world's most demanding alpine climbers. Of course, the climbs and the climbers are now the stuff of legend. Inspiration for the next group to realize the freedom of moving over rock and ice in a fast and light way. The rest, three decades of elation, misery, 
epics, and near misses, we put back into everything we make. Light, durable, functional, packable. Wild Things Gear is made and tested by those who live in it. Available exclusively at wildthingsgear.com. Stay wild. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. This is Jimmy Gould, and I'm here with my very special friend, special guest, Will Cross, world-class mountain climber who has ascended the highest peaks on all seven continents and is about to uh, head out on Makalu uh, for his 28,000-foot climb. Uh, Will, before we took the break, I wanted you to talk to our listeners a little bit about your experience of of really walking the North and the South Pole, and particularly about your incident with the polar bear. Can you describe that journey of the North and the South Pole? Because when I tell people about it, they go like, you got to be kidding me. So, right. like you were pulling a sled, talk right. about that, and then we could go into the mountains after that. So in, in 2001, I set about walking to the, to the North Pole. There's a a floating base camp up there that the Russians have, have been up there for years, and they specialize in landing aircraft with passengers on it. So I went up to the North Pole really as my as my introductory expedition and, and as part of planning to walk to the South Pole. It was going to be a two-week expedition. Quite honestly, my biggest challenge was how to prevent my insulin from freezing. I solved that problem uh, with the help of NASA, but the most pressing problem at the North Pole is the polar bears. And I mean, you're, you're 200 pounds of fresh meat. There was a team of five of us, each of us pulling, you know, 100 pound sleds eight hours a day. We're, we're sleeping in a tent at night. And, you know, so it's discerning just knowing that these magnificent beasts are around, but, but also you take some significant steps to make sure they don't eat you. So you put a, you put a, um, a set of trip flares around your tent uh, and a wire, and if they, if they nudge the chicken wire, it sets off these phosphorus flares and they, they're supposed to run away. So that's one thing you do. I mean, you also carry a shotgun. Um, shotgun that you hope is going to work um, because it's so cold. Um, you know, it's, it's been in the tent, so there's maybe some moisture uh, inside the tent from you breathing, and then you put it back in your sled and it freezes. So it's, it's those simple variables that just sort of eat away at you. And, and the most common thing uh, for a polar bear to do is, you know, their paws are so large that they can sneak up behind you when you're separated from the tent uh, and literally just take your head off. And so to, to know that as you're sleeping and to then see the creatures themselves on the horizon with nothing but ice between you and them uh, is definitely alarming. Um, are, I mean, the term hunting you is really what I think most people find remarkable. I mean, do they actually stalk you and hunt you like a person would do in they, a situation like that? You know, they rarely, but they will. I mean, if they are hungry and they have mm-hmm. not eaten, they will hunt humans. Um, but it is it is not something... It happens often enough where everybody who goes up there, you take a, a gun, you set up trip wires. Um, rarely are there, you know disastrous incidents uh, on the polar journeys. But, you know, you get to see a, a beautiful animal in, in its environment, and, and I certainly appreciated that and 
seeing the seal that were up there and the Arctic fox and it's just an, it's an amazingly spacious place. Um, but it's a, it's a beautiful animal and, you know, I obviously would not want anything uh, to go wrong with a polar bear. So, um, you've climbed Mount Everest now three times. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I know you had a difficult experience in one of your climbs and did it take you three times to finally make the top or tell me maybe a little bit about that. And then I'd like to talk about Makalu. So I went to Everest in 04, uh, first time that I'd been on an 8,000 meter peak and, um, I partnered with the discovery channel and with Nova Nordisk and, Really, this was the, the, la- the last part of the seven summits. And I had left it to last because I really didn't know if I could climb Everest. Um, I didn't know what it would do to my blood sugar. Um, I didn't know how my physiology would, would respond. As it happened, uh, my body reacted very, very well. Um, I learned to manage my insulin, uh, keep myself hydrated, understand the differences between altitude sickness and hypoglycemia and so on. In 04, I got as high as an area called the balcony. It's around 27,000 feet. Uh, And I had an oxygen malfunction. Mm. And uh, my partner uh, had gone blind in one eye because of the change in pressure. And so those two things determined that we turn around and go back down. Now, was that permanent, or does that come back after he comes down the mountain? It, it comes back. Um, right. It comes back. You know, just that change in pressure, some of those tiny blood vessels can pop, and nothing to do with diabetes or anything else, but obviously it's time to go home when that starts happening. So it's what happened to me in Everest, when I mean in uh, Kilimanjaro, when the blood vessels in my eyes burst. It's that type of feeling. It's, they start hemorrhaging behind the eyes. Exactly right. right. Yep, 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 same, same. Hmm. Not so, a, no, it's not a fun experience, no. No, so I went, <laughs> I went back, um, I mean, you know, sort of somewhat sheepish. Here you are doing the Discovery Channel with millions and millions of viewers. You know, you're hoping to get to the top and to finish this project, and it just wasn't going to happen. So I went back in '05. Um, my partner was perfectly healthy. He was on a different trip, and I got a lot higher on the mountain, and uh, I knew I could summit. I wasn't sure if I could get down. It was entirely a judgment call, and I turned around at uh, 100 meters away from the top, a football field from the top. Wow. Um, because it didn't make much sense to me. We were talking earlier about sort of mental rehearsal and going through all the options. And and I had decided, you know, when I got that high, if I had to ask the question, can I make it or not? Mm-hmm. You know, I've already really, that. well, there's the answer. Yes, exactly. So, so I saw the weather coming and I got out of there. I got down in one piece, no problem. But now I haven't made the summit in two years. And... You know, I'm not sure if I can fund it. I'm not sure if I can get the time, you know, let alone what friends and family are going to say. You know, long and short, I come back for a third time, but I commit to the third time being my last attempt um, because it is dangerous. I mean, when you go that high for that long, it is dangerous. And I thought, you know, I give it everything I have on the third go. Uh, If it doesn't work... I kind of want to walk away honestly and say this is not meant to be, but I just want to give it everything I've got. And right. um, it was it was just absolutely perfect. I climbed with uh, Appa Sherpa, world record holder. I think he now has 22 summits to my one, <laughs> but uh, a great uh, individual to climb with. And uh, I made the summit on May 23rd and was... What, what year was that? That was 2006. Wow. And it's kind of haunting up at the summit. You know, people, I think, expect uh, great moments of revelation and insight. You're exhausted. You're dehydrated. You're malnutrition. You're sleep-deprived. And you're only halfway there. And that is quite a terrifying feeling. Halfway there because you've got to come back down? Because you've got to come back down, which is... Much, much harder. 
You know, you've got a limited supply of oxygen. You're already exhausted. And emotionally, uh, you've really got to work hard to keep it together and not get too excited and sort of lose your grip. You don't want to lose the plot. What time, what amount of time now from the beginning of when you started in um, Kathmandu to when you reached, when you came back down from, um, from, from the summit and all the way back down the mountain? Two what months. was that period of time? Two months? Yeah, that's a period of about 60 days. Wow. Oh, how, much, how much time on the mountain, actually? Uh, you're on the mountain about six weeks. Of wow. that eight, you're on the mountain about six. And you're actually at the summit at the peak for how long? Five minutes? Oh, maybe, yeah. I mean, 20 minutes is a long time because you have a limited supply of oxygen. So, yeah, maybe five, ten minutes. You want to take now, the pictures a, and get out of there. A difficult question. Uh, is it true that along the way there are still um, bodies that are yeah. buried uh, along the way? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um Everest is, because it's a popular mountain, there are deaths there every year. Um, people who've read Into Thin Air, the 96 disaster, those bodies are, you can still find them if you know where to look. I mean, the cold preserves the bodies. Um, and you've got to reconcile yourself with that before you go. I mean, it, it's a dangerous endeavor. Um, People do die. Uh, they die every day, but on mountains, they die a lot. So, yes, you are going to see bodies. So let me ask you, you chose to uh, Makalu for your next expedition, and you attempted to climb the mountain in 2010, but were unable to reach the, type, the, the top. Uh, why Makalu right now, and, and what are you doing differently to maybe help you be successful? Well, to be honest, in 2010, that mountain just clean my clock. I, um, I did not have the team or logistics or mental presence to be successful on that mountain. And, you know, while I'm there, I sort of go at it as many different ways that I can think of. But at some point, you know, you're being dumb about it and someone's going to get hurt. So I had made it up to camp two, and I just decided it just it wasn't right. It didn't feel right. It wasn't moving on all cylinders, and that is not an easy decision to make, but it's the right one. Right. So I'm going back this time, um, one, because I, I think I can do this mountain. I don't know that I can, but I, I think that I can, and I want to give it an honest shot. I wanna, I've got a good team. I've got good logistics. I've got great Sherpa. Um, I've got a good system, I'm more experienced, and this is what I like to do. Um, so I'm going to go back and, and give it another shot. Well, we're uh, hopefully going to have, uh, as part of this show, um, you know, uh, some moments with you actually on the mountain. Uh, great, hopefully yeah. we'll be successful at that uh, at some stage of the climb. The climb is about a two-month climb, is that about right? That's right, yeah, exactly. So let me ask you, how important is the new technology that's being developed uh, as to your equipment? And also, you've mentioned your team several times. How important are those things to a successful climb? And to me, a successful climb, by the way, to me, is is returning uh, home safely. Oh, um, oh, absolutely. That's how I look at it. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I think you would agree with me on that. No, I would absolutely agree. Up and up and back is definitely the the success of of climbing. Team is, I think, is a critical part of climbing. Everyone from um, supporters uh, and and Sherpa that you're working with to the cook to your actual climbing partners, all of those mesh together for a successful summit and a continued friendship after the summit. In terms of technology, you know, it's, you got to work hard these days to frostbite your, your feet and your hands. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 years ago, it was not uncommon to see veterans who'd lost a finger or a couple toes and they, they sort of wore them as badges of courage. I mean, that rarely happens today because Oxygen delivery systems are are more efficient. Uh, insulation is lighter. 
more waterproof, more breathable. Um, fabrics are cut better. They last longer. Uh, zippers don't malfunction. Gloves keep your hands warm. All of those things combined uh, means that you can stay out in the elements longer, warmer, more present, uh, and less exposed. So it's played a huge role. Let me ask a couple other questions. We only have a few minutes left. Uh, how many people, when you talk to them, think you're completely crazy for what you do? And are you fearful um, at any time or all the time or ever? Um, many people, as many people think I'm crazy as think, wow, that's the life. So it's sort right. of a 50-50. Right. Yes, I am fearful. Um, I get scared enough when I get to a mountain and first onto the glacier that generally I will dry heave. Um, hmm. I find that fear and the, uh, the mental steps taken to manage it intriguing. And I also find that fear to be humbling. It keeps you honest. It means that you are aware of the situation and you will not let arrogance get the better of you. Um, and so I find that it keeps me alive. Um, I would love to tell you that I'm, you know, big and bad and going after the peak. I am not at all. I am taking it slow and steady, and and I love to be there, but I don't want to mess it up. Well, I, I know you well, and I, I count you as one of my dear friends, and I can tell you that you're very humbling. Uh, you're very uh, down-to-earth. Uh, it's been a remarkable friendship for 10 years, and, and I intend for it to be a lot longer. And um, I want to ask you, because I've never asked you this, do you have heroes? Do you, are there people that, you know, if I asked you who you wanted to have dinner with, who, who would you tell me? Or what would you say? Oh, I'd have dinner with Winston Churchill. Yeah, me too. I would yeah, talk about a man that performed under pressure. I'd have dinner with uh, Ernest Shackleton. Man who got all of his team home, never yeah. made it to the South Pole. Yeah, that's true. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that there's a moment in your life when you look at what happened to you when you were a child and say that uh, there are no coincidences and that maybe in some strange way it gave you a certain inner strength to pursue these kinds of dreams that a lot of people would not even consider? I do. I think that's accurate. I think anybody with a diagnosis, uh, a sort of a terminal condition, it's either going to make or break you. That's the human condition. And, and I, I was told very young, look, you can either make the best of it or you can whine about it. Those are really your only two options. So I do think it gives me some strength and some drive and, and some ability to reflect and to perform that otherwise I may not have. Um, I certainly wouldn't wish it upon anyone, but I, I do feel like I'm sort of making the best of, of what I've got. Well, I think you have taken the, uh, the issue of diabetes, which is so rampant in, uh, in the world, particularly in, in, in America, and put it in the foreground. I know we've talked about it uh, when we did our show from the mountain, and we're talking about it now, and we certainly will continue to talk about it, and, and it's such a powerful subject because it's affecting so many of our younger people today, but also, uh, as you stated, uh, we could probably, uh, certainly in, in a type 2 diabetes, probably have a big effect by uh, a change of diet and various other things, exercise and stuff like that. So I think what you're doing to bring this to the forefront is really remarkable. And I appreciate it, Jimmy. And the fact you've dedicated your life to it. I do have a question in, in the minute or so remaining. As you look back on all your journeys, and I've asked this of all of our uh, guests over the past year and a half, what do you feel is the real meaning of life, the real purpose of life? Uh, well, I think the purpose of life is to identify what you're good at and to go after it, but to include people and the world around you and make it better, not to exclude people and make the world worse. That's well put. 
Okay. That's very well put. Do you have any advice for our younger listeners that aspire to follow their dreams and maybe take off for the mountain and and pursue, you know, things that are outside their comfort zone? The advice is very simple. Um, you you have to identify what you want, what you really really want, what you're what you're willing to give up things for, go through some discomfort for. What is it that is the most important to you? And it may not be self-evident. It may take you some time to find it, but identify what you want and then go after it to the best of your ability. Well, it's been a pleasure to have Will Cross share his journey with us. Uh, Our time is almost up. I'd like to Thank you, Will, for sharing your journey with us. Uh, You're a dear friend, and we're going to be following you on your trip to Makalu. And while you're on the mountain, we'll be talking with you. We're very appreciative that you were able to join us today. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in to A Current Life on the Voice of America Variety Channel. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, signing off. And please join us next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern for our next episode. I would like to thank our sponsors, uh, Smartwater and uh, uh, Ad Space Mall Network, our producers at Voice America, as well as my associate producers, Jane King and Teddy Kremchak, for their help on this show. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, and success. And will to you, safe travels, my friend. Thank Be you. Be smart, and, uh, and I wish you much success and much great health on this journey, and I look forward to talking to you during it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.